Well, good morning, everybody. We are, as I mentioned before, going to be continuing our study through Hebrews chapter 11. And so far, we have covered 22 verses of chapter 11. And we have seen, by my count, eight examples of faith to this point. Initially, the act and the belief in God having created everything is an example. But then we get into a list of individuals who evidence faith. And the entire purpose of the chapter, as stated in chapter 12, we're supposed to look at this cloud of witnesses that surround us, even though they lived thousands of years ago, most of them, even though they are an ancient group, they are still supposed to inspire us today because the faith that they had, we have. If we know Christ, we can live as victoriously as they did, not repeating every act that was historically occurring in their lives. Those were unique individuals at unique times. But it's supposed to encourage us as Christians that we can persevere no matter what's going on, that we can press on, that that other people have gone before us and have shown what's possible, and we can walk in their footsteps. So far, we've seen this through the life of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And we covered Isaac and Jacob and Joseph the last time I was teaching. And as I mentioned repeatedly before, we spent a lot of time on Abraham of all those individuals I just listed. We spent multiple weeks on Abraham because there's more on Abraham in this chapter than anyone else. He was the patriarch. He was the founder of the nation. He was the one to whom God made the promises. And he was a really a pinnacle figure in all of Jewish history. When the Jewish leaders were arguing with Jesus, I've referenced this verse before, when they were, Jesus was claiming to be God and they basically were saying, we're going to put you in your place. You don't have to turn there, but John 8:53 says, surely you were not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? In other words, they just pulled out the trump card. Abraham is this towering figure. Come on, Jesus, you're not saying you're greater than Abraham. And of course, Jesus was saying that because he is God. But he was a paramount figure in Judaism from an historical perspective. That being said, in day-to-day life at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, probably the person that had more day-to-day influence wasn't Abraham, as great as he was and as revered as he was and as legendary as he was. On a day-to-day basis, the individual in Judaism that had the most impact on their lives was Moses. Moses was... Likewise, a towering figure in Judaism. As you recall, the whole focus of the book of Hebrews is to point these people who came out of a Jewish background and came to faith and to point them to Christ was to keep them from going back to the law. And the law was tied up in Moses. He was the lawgiver, so to speak. God used him to give the first five books of the Bible. And so everything in their life, their daily existence, the rituals, the temple sacrifices, all could be traced to Moses. Why in the New Testament over and over, although it's also in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, you refer to the law of Moses. It's obviously the law of God, but God used Moses to give the law. And so Moses was an equally legendary figure, perhaps on a day-to-day basis, even more front and center in the minds of individuals. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on this individual who many would say probably they would have thought was the greatest leader in Jewish history. 
even greater than David, because the Exodus was such a centerpiece of all of their history. And who led them out in the Exodus? It was Moses. He was the figure. And when we get into Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 29, it's a long section. This morning we're only covering verse 23. We're seeing an extended treatment of various aspects of the life of Moses. Because Moses also was this towering figure in Judaism, and yet he's not put here, again, to make us awe. He's put here so that we'll follow in his footsteps. Now, it's interesting, the writer of Hebrews covers the entire span, well, not the entire span, but a big chunk of Moses' life from the time he was born up until probably he was at least into his 80s. So there's a big extensive treatment of Moses, even though it's not given every detail. But this is not the first time he's referenced Moses. In fact, he's already appealed to Moses in this letter in chapter 3 in great detail. I went back and looked in my notes back in 2009 when I taught through chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It took me three Sunday school lessons to get through the material. And I actually preached it. Again, I looked online and saw that I preached it in February of 2010 at Lakeside when Pastor Steve was gone. I preached two Sunday sermons, and it was comparing the life of Moses with the life of Jesus. So I want to just for a moment have you turn back to Hebrews chapter 3 because I just want to highlight something. I'm not going to re-preach those messages. You could go and find them and go through it. But I just want to highlight that the writer has already assumed that they understood the place of Moses in their history. Because as the writer is trying to get them to focus on Jesus Christ, put your focus on Jesus Christ, he is the one who is the preeminent focus of attention. Jesus is the one to look to, not the Old Testament law. He does it by contrasting him with Moses, which for their purposes would have been as great a person as you could have found. As great as Moses was, though, the writer was making it clear Jesus is better. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So Moses has already in the writing of this letter been held up as a paradigm of faithfulness in fact that's high praise and the high praise comes from god's assessment of moses's life not moses's assessment of himself and in fact the the term servant used there for moses points out that he had a position of esteem even in god's eyes i pointed out when i taught through this before you do a quick bible search and, and i use bible works as software there are 779 verses in the new american standard that reference moses by name Obviously, there's more verses that reference him without using his name. That's just the name Moses pops up that much. He's included in references of all four of the Gospels in the New Testament. In at least eight other New Testament books, by name, Moses is set forth. 
Now, I point all this out just to show that when we come to a great hall of faith, the presence of Moses in that should not surprise us. He is this paramount figure in human history. If we're to be encouraged by men and women of faith to emulate their conduct, it wouldn't be possible to omit this great man, Moses. I think it's fascinating as I thought through this, the Mount of Transfiguration, who was one of the people that was there? Moses. I can't even imagine how, how that must have been. But the first example that we get from Moses' life, for all of that introduction, and I'm going to do more introduction as we cover Moses later. I'm going to talk more about details. What's interesting is the first aspect of Moses' life, the first by faith portion of it, doesn't actually involve Moses. It involves his parents. So when we look at verse 23, which is where we're going to stay this morning, we're actually not seeing something about Moses. We're seeing something about Moses' parents. So follow along with me. I'm going to read chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. As has been the cases I've gone through this, we see this over and over and over again, by faith, by faith, by faith. That's the calling card of the entire chapter. And because it's followed by Moses' name, even the first reading, by faith Moses, you think, oh, it's about him. But obviously when we read the whole verse together, we see that the faith that's being exercised is being exercised by his parents. And it's the focus on his parents and the actions they took to save his young life, that are held up as an example. Now, one of the things I've really enjoyed and I am enjoying about going through chapter 11 is it gives me an opportunity to focus us on the Old Testament a lot. Uh, just the nature of my teaching, I haven't spent time in the Old Testament in this class, but in this chapter, we're continually going back to Old Testament information, and it's good for us to continually be reminded of how unified the Scriptures are and how they tie together. And this morning... We're going to be looking in the book of Exodus. So hold your place in Hebrews 11, because what's talked about in Hebrews 11, verse 23, is based on historical events that are recorded in Exodus chapter 2. But for this purpose, we're going to go back to Exodus 1, because I want to paint a picture and set the stage. The stage that's being set is going to help us understand this one verse, but it's also going to sort of be a precursor for understanding where we are in biblical history as we talk about the remaining verses that deal with Moses. Because Moses the man didn't just drop out of nowhere. He fits into the biblical flow of history in a certain spot. And as you recall, when we went through the last portion of our teaching last time, the last person we mentioned was Joseph. He was a man of faith as well. And the last verse of Genesis, I have you in Exodus chapter 1, but you look at the very last verse of Genesis, it deals with Joseph's death. Genesis fifty twenty six says this, So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, at the time of his death, his entire family was in Egypt. We understood the story. We, we talked about it a little bit before. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, but God used all of that, orchestrated all those events to save that family. 
So it wasn't just Joseph that was in Egypt. It had been his father and all his brothers. Everybody attached to the promises of God wound up in Egypt. All of the nation of Israel that existed at that time, which they were 70 in number, I believe, 70 or 72, I think 70 in number, all of them were in Egypt. And they were protected and safe. They had food to eat. Joseph was the second most powerful man in Egypt. The only person more powerful was Pharaoh, the king. So they really were protected and they were safe. Now, Joseph himself, and I read these verses last week, verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 50. Again, it should be on the same page for you. Joseph knew, as his father did before him, that eventually God was going to move them out of Egypt. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land, the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So everyone knew at some point the Israelites were going to leave Egypt. But right now, at that point when Joseph died, they were safe. They were secure. They had the favor and protection of the government. Life was as good as it could be in that time for strangers that wandered into another land. But when Exodus picks up the count, the account rather, and the biblical flow of history, things had turned dramatically. Again, I understand many of you know this, but it's good for us to be reminded of these things. Exodus 1-6 will be where I pick up. It recounts before that who was in Egypt. Exodus 1-6 says, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So they were all gone. Verse 7, though, shows that life moved on and God was blessing the descendants of Abraham. Verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. God was really blessing this group of people that started out small in number. They had to come to Egypt because they were going to starve to death. But now they're being blessed and they're multiplying and multiplying and they're growing and growing. Verse 8, as a good drama would have it, a good movie turn, but this is reality. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's the turning point. Joseph was the favored one of Pharaoh, of the king. Joseph was protected. The Israelites were protected. And why were they protected? Because Joseph had saved all of their lives. Remember, the king of Egypt had had a dream, and he didn't know what the dream meant. And Joseph made clear to him by God's enablement, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have six years of plenty, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And he had the wisdom and God gave him the wisdom and put him in a position so that he executed a plan that kept all of Egypt safe. They had food to eat. They didn't starve to death. And yet his great contribution to Egyptian society by whatever point we are in verse 8 is gone. Whatever record there must have been of it, this king didn't know about it. All he knew was what he thought he saw with his eyes that he thought these people were a pestilence in his land. Verse 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of of Israel are more and mightier than we. Verse 10, Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. The nation of Israel was no longer safe and protected. 
this king recognized they had multiplied so much that they were a threat in his mind to the fabric of Egypt society. I thought it was interesting as I thought through this. Today, some of the similar mindset goes on in various countries, particularly in Europe, although it takes root here in America. But in Europe, there's an anti-immigrant hysteria. France is a good example of it. We had a, a, a presentation last week about the work being done in France, but they just had elections, and one of the parties that won a lot of elections is saying, let's don't have immigration. Why? Because a lot of Islamic people have come into France, and they've multiplied, and they have votes. France allows everyone from their former colonies, many of which were in Africa and elsewhere that are Islamic, to come to France and be citizens or to have the rights of citizenship to take monies. And they're looking around going, wait a minute, we're about to be outnumbered. I just think it's interesting how history doesn't change. Different names in different places, you go back thousands of years, that's what Pharaoh was concerned about, that very thing. Hey, wait a minute, we're outnumbered. And I think there's, without reading too much into it, also the Israelites, the nation of Israel, was a key part of their economy. They were the labor force. You look at the end of his statement, he was afraid that they would leave. Not only that they would join with the enemies and fight against them, but that they would leave. That was a concern. They would depart from the land. So the king wanted to make sure that a revolt couldn't happen, so he hatched a plan, and basically, if you summed it up in today's vernacular, he decided to work them to death. Just put taskmasters over them, start cracking the whip, and have them work to the point of exhaustion. Just wear them flat out. Maybe that will deal with the issue. And so he did that, and he afflicted them. But look at verse 12 of chapter 1. But the more they afflicted them, meaning the Egyptians afflicted the Israelites, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. No matter how hard they tried to work them, the Israelites kept spreading more. Just kept going. And so now we're on the doorstep of where we're going in Hebrews 11, verse 23. But Pharaoh decided to hatch a more drastic plan. He understood, here's what's happening. They keep repopulating themselves. They keep having babies. And they're producing more and more Israelites. And so he came up with a plan, and it was very simple. Just kill all the baby boys. Within a generation or two, you've got nobody to propagate the race... Who knows, we, the scriptures don't explicitly say why he allowed the baby girls to live. I assume perhaps they could be some use to the Egyptians. Perhaps they were going to be a pool of people to marry. But he went to a couple of Hebrew midwives, as you recall the story. And he said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to help because you're going to kill all the baby boys. When you see a baby boy, you kill him. You can let the girls live. Look down to verse 15, and you see this spelled out a little bit. Apparently, even though they had great numbers, there were two prominent midwives that were involved in the delivery of the Hebrew children. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the, upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then you shall live. Then she shall live. Verse 17 is a key, though. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, 
but let the boys live. Now, the king eventually tried to hold them to account, and they explained it away. The Hebrew women give birth quickly. Ultimately, though, they feared God, and they would not carry out this wicked plan, and God blessed them. God gave them their own families. They were blessed and were able to have families, but Pharaoh wasn't done, so his plan was thwarted. Work them to death didn't work. They kept it spreading. Well, we'll have the midwives kill the boys. That didn't work. The boys kept coming. Verse 22 shows where Pharaoh took his plan next. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. It seems like at this point the edict went past the midwives and went to the parents. You have to kill your own sons. If you have a daughter, she can live. But if you have a son... You're supposed to toss them in the Nile River. Obviously, the child would die quickly. Perhaps drowning, perhaps animals, who knows. To think through that, it's really hard to believe because even though we're reading an account from thousands of years ago, this is real. This really happened. These were real men and women being told, kill your sons. Today, we're going to have a child dedication. I was looking, so I was thinking through my notes. One, two, three, four, five, five little boys that are going to be a part of that. And imagine in this context what was basically being said to them with all the thrills and excitement of having a child. The equivalent would be, I tell you what, every boy you have, you go throw them in the Gulf of Mexico. Can't keep them. Just throw them, over the, throw them off the bridge. The king's order was unbelievably wicked it was vile I'm can it's not there in the text but I think it was satanically driven Satan has always hated the Jewish people the penalty for violating the law wasn't necessarily spelled out in these verses but you know it was severe And yet it's like when people were faced with that, some had to make the choice. Do we let our child live or do we just follow the law and just avoid problems? You can be sure whatever the penalty was, it wasn't merciful and it wasn't minor. And all of this is the historical backdrop to Exodus chapter 2, which is the moment in human history, in biblical history, where this man Moses comes into the equation. So look with me. At Exodus 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. Verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. That's the account. Those two verses are the account that we see in Hebrews 11.23. Hebrews 11.23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, we don't know that much about Moses' parents. We know that Moses was a descendant of Levi. His father and mother were descendants of Levi, which when Aaron became the first priest, so to speak, the first high priest, that's why the Levites, that line, are the priests, because... Moses and Aaron's parents were Levites. So when God established the priesthood, 
the Levites were involved. They were the exclusive occupiers of those offices. And we actually are, I didn't realize this at first, but we actually are told the, told the names of Moses' parents. Now, don't look anywhere, and if you've already looked ahead, don't look. Does anybody know off the top of your head the name of Moses' parents besides Steve? Beth? You get, an, you get a prize. I don't know what it is. I don't have anything to give you. That's exactly right. I don't think before I studied this that those were household names that I was throwing around. In fact, Debbie and I didn't even talk about this. So um, They're still not household names at the Trophimuck household. But that were their names, Amram and Jochebed. But what they do know is they were God-fearing people. They did everything in their power to save Moses' young life. He was hidden for three months by his parents. When you read the Exodus account, and it's not a contradiction, the focus is on the mother, but what we see by the inspiration of the Spirit of God is that it wasn't just the mother, it was the mother and the father. They were both a part of this plan. They did not obey Pharaoh and his wicked law. They hid Moses for three months. Now, we will cover more later if we were to look through it, and we'll cover this in a later verses. We understand the rest of the story. They, they put their boy in a floating basket. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter. Ultimately, a, a whole host of events worked to get his life to where it was. We'll come back to that in later verses. But here, the focus is on the fact that when he was born, his parents would not obey the wicked edict to kill him. They were willing to risk whatever punishment was brought to bear to keep him alive. And we know from the rest of biblical history they were successful, but they didn't know they were going to be successful necessarily. I don't think they had any way of knowing for certain the outcome when they began that three-month process of hiding. And I can't imagine how stressful and difficult that would have been. How do you keep a baby quiet for three months? We have a cry room because you can't keep a baby quiet for an hour. <laughs> when you think about that, and every moment living in fear, what if there's a little bit of colic? What if they're smelly? I don't know what diapers they used back then. I have no idea, but... Oh, that smells funny. It smells like a baby's there. It had to be stressful because not everyone would respect that. Human nature being such as it is, there's always somebody willing to turn somebody else in to curry favor with the authorities. But no matter what, they did it as long as they could at home because they were going to preserve this child's life. Now, at first glance, I have to admit, their motivation that's pointed to both in Exodus and in Hebrews, sounds a little bit odd. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. Now, that sounds kind of weird. And I wish I was more mature, but I had to think, well, what if he was ugly? What would, what would happen then? But if we think past it, it goes beyond just his physical appearance. And I think we're supposed to recognize something beyond that from the language. Seems that somehow Amram and Jochebed knew by looking at him that Moses was a special child. That's the point. 
Somehow they knew just by his countenance, by his appearance, we couldn't speculate as to what that might be, but they knew he was a special child. For just a moment, turn over to Acts chapter 7. If you want a quick survey of the history of Israel, when Stephen was about to be martyred, he gave an incredible sermon which included a history lesson on the nation of Israel. In essence, he was talking to these Jewish people as a Jewish person, talking about their common ancestry, leading up to the point where he was going to point out the Messiah and they were going to be so enraged they would murder him. But in Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 17, he starts talking about this same event that's the focus of our text this morning. He says, but as the time of promise was approaching, verse 17 of Acts chapter 7, but as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he'd been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. What's my point of doing this? It seems to be the focus is that somehow... He had a special countenance, a special appearance. Something about him set him apart. His parents recognized something about him that was different. Now, I don't think that what we're supposed to take away is that first silly thought that I had, well, Moses was good looking, feel bad for the ugly boys because they had a bad time. Because I don't think God chooses based on appearance. In fact, the scriptures say he doesn't choose based on appearance. In fact, despite the picture I have in Jesus, which is the good-looking man on the picture that hung up in the corner of the church I grew up in, I don't think from a human perspective, perspective Jesus was particularly striking or necessarily a good-looking man that everybody would go, ah, why do I say that? Because of the picture Isaiah paints in Isaiah 53. Verse 2, referring to the Messiah, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So I don't think the issue is just this dynamic good looks of Moses. I think the issue is that somehow God set him apart. There was a countenance about him that set him apart as a special part of God's plan. However it occurred, God worked in the hearts of his parents. And I think the ultimate point for us that comes forward is this next point. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. In verse 23, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. In other words, they were willing to pay the price. Whatever the king could do to them, that's okay. It's more important we're going to save our boy. We're going to do whatever we can to keep our boy alive. I think the ultimate idea conveyed is that they were more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing man. They feared God more than they feared the king. 
already read it, but when I think Moses' parents also exhibited the same thing as the Hebrew midwives, where it said in verse 17 of Exodus 1, but the midwives fear God, feared God. I think that's the same thing with Moses' parents. That's the ultimate evidence of their faith. They lived what Peter and the apostles lived. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. I think that's the ultimate lesson of all of this. When we look at this simple verse in verse 23, it screams out at us that parents were faced with that they trusted God. They feared God more than they feared what Pharaoh could do to them. I think their lesson of faith still has great relevance for us today. I think that not because I'm astute, because chapter 12 of Hebrews makes it clear this is a lesson for us today, but in terms of being able to see it and grasp it, I think this is a little easier to grasp. We must always obey God no matter what. And if we're ever faced with a choice where the law would require us to violate Scripture, we obey God rather than men. Now, I want to be careful in how I phrase this. Because the scriptures make this clear. If God's law is not an issue, we have to submit to the government. Period. Even if we don't like the laws our government passes. I think many Christians today, as I hear and I read and I talk and I observe, I think many Christians today are in danger of violating a clear teaching of scripture. For example, found in Romans 13. I'll read Romans 13, 1 and 2. You can just write it down. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. When we look at the life of Amrad and Jochebed, they did defy the government. But we shouldn't take a lesson there that we're to lead an armed revolt or to fight or be a revolution against the government. We're called by Scripture to submit to the government. If you read biblical history, if you read earthly history, you understand the Roman government at the time Paul wrote that makes our current government look like choir boys or choir girls. In fact, some people have tried to explain away maybe Paul wasn't, maybe he meant something different except that you run up against Peter who says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Most of the laws that annoy us right now don't require us to violate God's law. But I'm not telling you anything you can't see from watching the news. I think in my lifetime we will be faced with those choices. Coming rapidly at us, coming in at an alarming rate. I saw this as a lawyer. I could see where hate speech and other things are going to come to the point where they're going to say to you or to me, you can't share that truth from Scripture. But the lesson we can learn is that we always fear God more than we fear the government. We're not revolutionaries. We shouldn't usurp the authority of government. God puts the government over us. I wrestled with that for years as a young believer because I really didn't like Bill Clinton. And yet as I kept coming to grips, particularly when he was reelected, it's like I had to recognize this is who God allowed to rule our country, period. 
I can't spend the next four years shaking my fist and yelling and complaining. That's not what God called me to do. God calls me to live at peace as much as is possible. But I would say this, particularly as you see, like I do, our society spiraling from bad to worse. And as you see people being forced to contemplate, does this require me to violate Scripture? When that time comes, if it comes in our lives, we obey God, period. We fear God more than we fear any government. And understand this, even then, when we disobey the government because we obey God, the Scriptures make it clear we take our punishment. That's hard to think about. We obey God, and if we're punished for it, we rejoice. Because we were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And in a simple way, Moses' parents were willing to suffer. They were willing to take the consequences to obey God. And I would wrap this up. I was thinking of Acts 5.41. The apostles had been punished It says this, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. If we suffer in our country for the cause of Christ, we should rejoice because we were counted worthy. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Moses. Lord, over the next few weeks, as we study more and more the life of this man you used in such a foundational way, pray that you'll give us insight. But Lord, I thank you for this brief glimpse where we see that he had parents who feared you. Lord, they had a horrific choice in front of them, but they chose to obey you even if it cost them. Lord, we know you honored their obedience, that you ultimately worked it out in miraculous ways, and that Moses wasn't killed, even when he was discovered. But, Lord, they didn't know that. They were just being faithful. And I pray, Lord, as you allow us to be placed in situations where we can't see the outcome, that you would give us the courage to be faithful. Lord, I am alarmed like others at what's happening in our country. Lord, things are going from bad to worse. And as the scripture points out, it will continue. Yet, Lord, as this all happens, while we feel powerless, help us remember that you are sovereign and you're in charge. And you will work your purposes, just like you honored the choices of Moses' parents and worked those circumstances for your will, I pray that you would help us just to be faithful, that you would help us fear you, and that you wouldn't have us live in a constant state of agitation, but you would give us the faith to do what you've called us to do. We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.